Check one. Okay, this might work. We'll see. See what happens. Uh, The Life of Abraham, which is chapters 11 through 25 of Genesis. And we're right now in 19. Um, Let me set the stage before we read it. I think it will help a little bit. Catch you off to speed. Just a touch on Genesis. So in chapter 18, so God has visited Abram multiple times, Abraham multiple times in in the story of his life. He first calls him, and then he visits him. And one of those visits where God comes to Abraham is when he brings two angels with him, and they meet him under a tree right by his house. And he speaks with the Lord himself and these two angels, and they they are actually there not for him, but for his wife, Sarah. And they come to his wife, Sarah, and they say, Sarah, you know this promise has been given to Abraham that he is going to be the father of many nations. He is going to have multitudes of offspring and it's going to be like the stars in the sky without number. And these angels come to say to Sarah, that's going to happen in one year. And she, in the story in chapter 18, what does she do to the angels, the Lord who tells her that? She laughs in his face and says, are you kidding me? I'm like 89 years old. This is absolutely impossible. There's no way this is going to happen. Well then, the, the Lord and the two angels that are visiting Abraham teach Abraham about prayer. And the prayer is specifically for these two cities named Sodom and Gomorrah. You may have heard those cities before. They pop up throughout Scripture. They are infamous for what? Anybody remember? You remember what Sodom and Gomorrah are infamous for? Anyone? Anyone? Unrighteousness. Yes, yes. And for going down in flames. That's usually what most people remember it for. When you hear, that was a fire and brimstone sermon. It's usually talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. And guess what? We're in chapter 19 of Genesis. Which means this morning, we are in that fire and brimstone sermon. Let's dive right in to chapter 19. Here we are. Abraham has just prayed for this city. That God would spare it. That God would spare Lot. And you'll see from the story that in fact, Lot is spared. We'll start with verse 1. I think it's behind me too. Yeah, if you, don't, if you didn't bring a Bible. The two angels that I just talked about, those two angels that were with the Lord visiting Abraham, they came to Sodom to check it out. And it was in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. And he said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. And spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him or behind him, and he said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. 
But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, which means he's from out of town, and he has become the judge? Now then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house. That is the angels inside. They reached out their hands and they brought Lot into the house with them and they shut the door and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law? This is the angels talking again. Have you have, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out to the place, for we are about to destroy this town because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting or joking. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I will grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of those cities and what grew on the ground But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like a smoke of a furnace. So it was that, when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I thought about it this morning. Even as I had finished preparing a sermon on this passage, and I thought about the church. I've been pondering this week the church the church as it is in America today. And the reason I, I've had all these musings this week, these ponderings, is because of this high-profile leader named Bill Hybels. Have you guys heard of Bill Hybels? My two cousins work for this church in Chicago. It's called Willow Creek Church. And the main leader who planted it like 20 years ago and grew it to like 10,000 people was just charged with sexual assault. 
and is he had to resign, the board resigned, the people who came and followed him at the church, they all resigned, and it's just really hard to watch. And I was reminded of how enamored I was in the mid-90s with that particular church. I went to school up in Chicago, and I remember hearing about it. You know, you're hearing about this intense growth of this church. It's taking over half the city. It's just doing amazing things, and it was. Amazing things have happened because of that church. And it's a beautiful thing God has used. But I also remember how enamored I was with wanting to have a church that grew really fast. And everybody jumped on that bandwagon. At the same time, in the mid-90s, it was like, you got to be a big church, and you got to be a big church fast. That's your only choice. Mega church, baby. Let's do this. And the reason I was musing on that is because I was like, earlier in the week, I'm like, I don't want to preach this passage. I legitimately wrestled with, I'm going to skip this. Let's just move to chapter 21. All happy, Isaac's born. Yay! His name's Laughter. Let's just stick with that. Promises of God have been fulfilled. We don't need to touch Sodom and Gomorrah in this wildness that's happening in chapter 19. But I was like, no, Nathan, no. No. The church must, we must proclaim the word of God. We must preach what is in scripture and teach what God is teaching us. And I never want to veer from that. And if you, if you find me veering from that, you stop me. And you say, Nathan, teach us the word of God on the pages of the Bible. Um, and so let's do that this morning. Let's dive in. What we're seeing here, y'all, is what's called, I, co- I consider to be the spiral of sin. Sin, sin in our culture, is, it's a tough word. I think a lot of people shy away from it. People don't want to use it. Like, oh, gosh. You know, can't be sinful. And I understand that, right? Nobody wants to think of themselves as sinful. Nobody wants to spend time thinking about it or talking about it. Um, and so because of that, I think we have a very tepid view of sin in America. You know, like, I have some flaws. I'm going to be honest with you. I got, a, I got a few little things. I got some character hang-ups. Just want to get that out of the way as we start dating. Uh, but, you know... I'm not sure I would go as far as to call it a sin. Uh, you know, and so I think that's why it's important for us to study a passage like chapter 19 of Genesis, where we're looking at Sodom and Gomorrah. Because what we're seeing, what the, what the, the reason Sodom and Gomorrah is in the Bible is as an example. Other writers in the Old Testament are going to use Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of God's judgment. Writers in the prophets in the Bible, the larger prophets, the minor prophets, they use Sodom and Gomorrah as an example. And even Jesus himself is going to use Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of God's judgment on sin. And the point is, sin is serious. That is what Jesus tries to get across. That's what these writers in the Old Testament try to get across. It's serious business. It is Sin does not have this kind of silly agenda of, I just want you to get you to mess up. I just want to get you to say something stupid in public. Oh, wouldn't that be funny? The agenda of sin is destruction of relationships and destroying lives. That's the agenda. And that's what's been happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's look at how it happens in Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to do it like we're sleuthing, as though we're some sort of Sherlock Holmes I love the reboot of Sherlock Holmes. I love the way the camera shows that he can look and see a piece of hair on someone's lapel and be like, you just robbed a bank. (laughs) 
And then they zoom out in the camera. It's like, you know, he knew the hair was from this perfume shop. And that perfume shop had that certain thing. And he went into that perfume shop that time of day. And that's how he robbed the bank. And he went home. And I love it. It's beautiful. So we're going to do Sherlock Holmes this morning a little bit. Because the reason we're going to do that is because the angels were like Sherlock and Watson. These two angels go into the city and they're checking things out. God has had an outcry. The Hebrew word for outcry means there has been violent oppression of the poor and needy. That is what the outcry means. So they're going in to check it out. Is it as bad as they say? Well, we start with clue number one. That things are spiraling out of control. That sin is taking over. And we find clue number one at the front gate. So the two, Sherlock and Watson, walk up to the front gate... And they're greeted by Lot alone. So Lot was one of the leaders of the city because the leaders of the city hung out by the front gate. But what we see in this picture is that no one else, no one else lifts a finger. This is a town that you would describe as inhospitable. Lot, the only righteous man in the town, according to scripture, is the only one who greets these visitors who come into town. A.K.A. you don't want to go to this place. I looked up the definition of inhospitable to get an idea of what it meant. Harsh and difficult to live in. Unfriendly and unwelcoming toward people. Unneighborly, unsociable. See, hospitality is a window into the heart. It's a window into the love that someone has if they share hospitality. And so what we're seeing is this town, an oppression had taken over Sodom and Gomorrah. That the outsider is not welcome in Sodom and Gomorrah. That they are going to, that they view new people entering into their town as a threat. Okay? Unwelcoming. You do not want to go to this place. Sin is rampant. That's the idea here the Bible is getting across. So that's clue number one. Let's go to clue number two. Clue number two is the fear we see at the town square. So Lot who has got a little bit of righteousness in him. Honestly, I can relate a little bit to Lot. He's sort of lukewarm. Let's be honest. So he's like, okay, y'all come to my house. It'll be wonderful. I'll fix a feast. We'll enjoy some you know, time together and we'll chit-chat. And they're like, no, we've been sent here to Sleuth. I'm Sherlock. This is Watson. And we need to go check out the town square tonight. We need to go see what's happening in this town. And Lot's like, nope. No, no. Get in the house. His point is, this is not the kind of town you want to be in when the sun goes down. Because it's not just that this town is inhospitable and, oh, you know, they could be a little more friendly. No, we're going to see from clue number three, let's go ahead and move into it, that there's a mob that's going to come to the front door of the house where Lot lives. And don't worry, I'm going to keep this tame. Okay, just heads up for the kiddos that are in here. Um, what we're, what we're seeing here is the spiral of sin. First, we've seen there's an inhospitable nature to sin, right? Outsiders are a threat. People are a threat to me. But it goes way beyond that here in this part where the mob comes up to the house. They knock on the front door and they're like, bring those men out so that we can know them. Okay, going to let you all use your imagination there. So we can know them, basically do some terrible things to them um, and, and, and show them that we are... Um, Unfriendly, to say the least. And so uh, it is, an, is a picture of the wickedness to which Sodom had come to. They, they were in a, in a death spiral. 
Um, that, and it says, the Bible is very clear to use strong wording here. It says, both the young and the old. It says, everyone in the town. They, they don't leave, they don't leave, the Bible does not leave anything out, anyone out. And there's a picture here of, guess what? I and mean, this was tough for me this week. It really hit me. We teach our kids. We teach our kids. The people of this town had taught their kids the same thing. Young and old came out. And we're going to do horrible things to the men that were staying in this house. It was something that was generational. Which sin often is generational. It's something that by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we have to work on breaking in our life. Because there are things we, that were passed down to us from our family, from our parents, that we've got to, by the Holy Spirit to break the power of in our life. But also, there are things that we have to break so that our kids, we don't pass them on to our own children. This is an idea of sin is also generational. God says in the Ten Commandments, I will visit the sins of the Father on the, up to the third and fourth generation, but I will bless those for thousands of generations that follow my commands and are, are righteous in me. So we have to remember generational sin is real. That's one point from this. It's one application for our lives. But also, I think it's a time, as these men approach the door and they're trying to pull these two angels out of the house to have relations with them, we have to remember that um, there is right and wrong. And what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah is that the line had become completely blurred. Right? We, as, as, as believers, as Christians who teach the Bible, we believe there actually is a standard of right and wrong. I mean, I talk with lots of folks, uh, even in our town, and who have different, differing views. You know, that's okay. But I firmly believe that God is the one who gives us our standard of right and wrong, and the Bible is where we find his standards. I was talking with someone um, a little while ago, a, a person who is a professor in anthropology. And uh, here in town, and and they were, I, I was asking, you know, how do you get some idea of ethics of where you can find right and wrong? And his answer was that well, the human brain, right? The human brain has evolved really well, and you know, we kind of seem to be figuring more and more things out. I was like, really? <laughs> I was like, have you watched the news? Um, but the Bible teaches us that that this is ongoing. That sin is ongoing, it's generational, but also the fact that there is a standard of right and wrong, and when you toss it out the window, horrible evils ensue. Y'all, what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah is that evil was beginning to be called good, and good was beginning to be called evil. You ever seen that before? You ever experienced that before? You'll see that even in our own society to this day. But when that happens, y'all, things get ugly. There is this continuing spiraling down into the depths of sin, calling evil good and good evil. Because once the truth is abandoned, anything is fair game. And so let's look for a minute, though, at God's grace in here. Let's look at God's mercy in this story of this spiraling sin. Lot comes outside. He steps outside of the house and he's like, y'all, do not do this wicked thing. He's being gentle. He's being friendly. He's trying to stop something horrible from happening. These men want to take advantage of the two angels that are inside. And their response is very typical of a culture that is calling evil good and good evil. Their response is this. Who are you, outsider, to judge us? Now, what's really, if you look at the passage, 
there's really nothing judgmental that Lot is doing in this. He's just saying, y'all, think of it. hold up, think about it, stop. Can we just talk about it a little bit? But immediately their response is, who are you to judge us? We want to do this wicked thing? You think you're all self-righteous? Get out of our way. We're going to go ahead and do it. Again, it's showing, the, the scripture is trying to show the depravity of what had happened in these towns and why God's judgment was coming upon them. Okay, so the next thing. Um, so there's, there's, there's this yelling at him. And then we see that the lukewarmness of Lot. Right, Lot, he, he, he showed hospitality to these visitors who came in, Sherlock and Watson. He allowed them into his house. He served them a fine feast. And then this weird part where they're demanding that these two angels come outside and he's like, well, let me, let's make a deal. How about I send out my two daughters who are virgins and you can have your way with them and do whatever you want to them. Um, I looked, I, I wrestled with this one this week. I don't know what's going on in Lot's mind. The only thing I could come up with from this particular piece was that Lot had, had been imbibing his own culture is where that came from. The Bible, the way it's written in the Hebrew, it's not condoning it. So don't think this is like matter of fact, like, well, of course. Oh, yeah, let me exchange my daughters. Oh, yes, uh, this is perfectly normal. And then you, don't, you leave these, these men alone, they're in my house. No, there is, there's a deep sense of the neutrality in the silence of the Bible is basically saying this man's heart also had been turned by his own culture. And, I mean, we expect, of course, the, the protection of a father of his own daughters? That's just, I mean, that is basic, isn't it? But it's showing that because of the sin of the city that Lot lived in, he had lost even that basic sense of as a dad, of course I'm not going to send my daughters out to let this mob have their way with him. That is, I, I, do you feel it this morning? How awful that is or sounds? That This depravity, y'all, had seeped into every corner of what was going on in this community. Okay. So that's clue number five. I don't I know if you knew we were already on number five. We only have one more clue. Um, the last clue is Lot's wife. And this helps unlock what's happening in this passage, in this chapter. So Lot's wife gets grabbed by the arm just like Lot does. I don't know if you noticed that. but Lot is so entrenched in his town and his culture and in the good things they had experienced there, that the angels literally have to grab him and his wife by the arm and get them out of the house. Imagine, it's something like if you had a kid. It doesn't have to be your own kid. It could be just a child. And you saw them drowning, or you saw them you know, in front of a car. Imagine grabbing them, and you grab them so hard that you cause bruises into their arm. They're like, ow, oh, this person's... And you're like, rip them out of the water, or you rip them out of the car, and they're like, ow, ow, I can't believe you did that. And the parents get mad at you, and you're like, oh my goodness. (laughs) I just saved your child from drowning. That's a little bit what's going on here. The angels are like, out now, this is gonna... I know you're feeling the hurt of being ripped from everything you know. But this is God's rescue. This is God's mercy in your life. But Lot's wife, it says in the story, you read down the passage, she can't let go. 
So what happens? It says she looks back and turns into a pillar of salt. That is a bit of um, sort of a, a phraseology from the Hebrew. But basically it means she turned back, ran towards what she knew, and because of the fire and brimstone coming down, burned up. That's basically what that's saying. She burned up. It doesn't mean she actually turned into, like, oh, I'm going to put this on my... Uh, she didn't actually turn into a pile of salt. Uh, but it was more of the... that. Sorry. <laughs> But it unlo- okay, let's, let's talk about unlocking this, what's happening in this passage. The conclusion. So Watson and Sherlock Holmes have looked at all these clues, this spiraling down of sin on this place, the way that sin can take over a, a heart, an individual heart, but also a community. And we see from Lot's wife that probably what was taking place in this town, and honestly, it's not just from Lot's wife, it's also from Ezekiel chapter 16. Let me read that real quick. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 and 50. It says, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. The reason this helps unlock it for us is, From Ezekiel, it seems that one of the major, if not the major, sin that was taking place is something the ancients called the vice of sloth. Have you ever heard of the vice of sloth? I I had to research it this week because I I was led to the the vice of sloth from reading Ezekiel chapter 16. But sloth is interesting. Many of us think of it just being laziness, right? But the ancients did not think of sloth that way. It is the rejection of of love because of what I want. I'll explain that a little bit further as we we go here. But it's basically like, I am going to reject God's rescue. This is Lot's wife. I'm going to reject God's rescue of me because I don't want it. I love what is in that town right over there. My heart is enamored with the things of this world My heart is enamored with being able to do what I want, when I want, how I want. That is how the entire city of Sodom and Gomorrah lived. What I want, when I want, how I want. And you better not get in my way. You better not get in my way. That's how they were living. They were teaching it to their children. And we see with Lot's reticence and with his wife's reticence to leave this town how... how, bound up their hearts were with, I cannot ex- receive the rescue of God. I can't really receive what God has for me. Lot bargains with the angels. Did you all see that? He's like, don't send me up to the hills. I Just give me over that town right over there. I can't even make the effort to go up that hill right there because I'm just so fickle. <laughs> I just don't really want this rescue. Y'all, I had to do some soul-searching myself this week as I wrestled with this. I really had to soul-search about, do I reject the rescue of God sometimes because I know that it means I'm going to have to sacrifice and serve and submit? You see, that is the temptation of every sin. Imagine an addiction. Every sin, which is what sin does, right? It leads to addiction. It's your way. You do it your way. Don't worry about God's way. 
Because if you truly accept his rescue, if you truly accept the love of God, guess what? You're on the hook. So it's hard for all of us, y'all. Here's where it really hit me, too. Not just with God. I do it with other people. Right? I find myself being tempted to keep people at arm's length from me because if I let them in, if I truly receive love from another person and truly give love to another person, guess what? I'm on the hook. I can't do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. But that is exactly what the gospel calls us to. It's saying the deepest desire of your heart is to have that. Even though sin is going to push you away from it at every turn, Sin is going to tempt you to avoid love, to avoid God's love, to avoid the love of other people, to stay disconnected from God and from other people. Because, y'all, electronics, oh my golly. The digital world is doing a phenomenal job of keeping us from connecting with God and with others. I thought about this week, pulled out my phone, and I was like, what am I doing? I was just praying, like two minutes ago, and here I am like, oh, no way. Seriously, a car turned over on the interstate three states away? That's incredible. Let me see the pictures. We have to take stock, y'all. We got to be real. Let it hit you. Ask this question of yourself. This is our application. Do you really want God's rescue? Do you really want God's love? Because I'm telling you, it's the greatest thing in the world but it does put us on the hook. It is going to require hard things, hard relationships, difficult sacrifice. But that is what God calls us to. And if you accept it, if you receive his rescue, it will bring the greatest joy your life could ever know. And guess what? What will overflow is help to the poor and needy. You see, that was God's indictment against Sodom and Gomorrah. He's like, there is a great outcry coming to me from this town. What does outcry mean? There's great oppression of the poor and needy in this town. People are stomping on other people. People don't care about anyone else. All they care about is themselves. And I I will not put up with it, says God. Let it sink in, y'all. It's a hard passage. But let's, let's conclude with something encouraging. You're like, Nathan talks about sin a lot. Yes, this passage kind of pushed us in that direction. But one of the cool things about this passage is that the angels encourage Lot to go to the hills. So this is a picture for us of the places that God calls us. So God calls us up to the hills. The Psalms talk about it. I lift my eyes up unto the what? Mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. It, throughout Scripture, mountains and hills are a picture of God's salvation. It is absolutely no coincidence that Jesus was crucified on a hilltop. It is Scripture finding its fulfillment at the very top of the Mount of Skulls, Golgotha. There's a reason it's the Mount of Skulls. Because Jesus wasn't just going to the hilltop. He was conquering death. The place where skulls are made. He was conquering the way that sin would have us. Y'all, don't for one second think sins are character flaws and little bitty hang-ups. Sin wants you. 
Sin wants you. It wants you dead. It wants your relationships killed. And it wants you alone. Satan would have it no other way. But God has provided a hill, a mount, a cross upon which his salvation comes to all of us. And the only thing, just like the Old Testament, just like here in chapter 19 of Genesis, the only thing required of us is to receive it. But as I've shared from this passage here in Genesis chapter 19, y'all, receiving it ain't all that easy. Don't kid yourself. It's not just like, no big deal. Yeah, of course, I'll take that. It's life-changing. It's life-altering. But my prayer, my longing, my heart, even this week for myself first, is that I would learn to receive, really receive the love of God so that I could share the love of God. But I'm on the hook. And my prayer for all of us is that we would learn to receive, that God would, through His Holy Spirit, He would open our hearts to truly let it in. (laughs) Because if you truly let it in, it's going to change everything. Let's pray. Lord God, I know I have not done complete justice to this passage here. But Lord, we pray that you would use what you taught me through it. And Lord, you would use it in our, in our lives. Lord, we, if, if, if anyone in here is like me, Lord, they, it, they find it hard to receive your love. Lord, because, because we know what it means. We know what the call is, Lord. It's going to require us to change some, to give more, to put our phones down more, to, to go to the poor, to go to the needy, Lord. But, Lord, you've also promised that that is the source and the place of our greatest joy. Lord, I pray that you would open us to that joy. And I pray, Lord, that you would empower us to receive this morning. Thank you for gathering us together to sit under your word. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's now stand for, oh wait, let's do, yeah, communion, sorry. Thank you, Christy. I'm out of, I'm out of habit.